This is the Horse Radio Network. I'm Emily Esterson from Coverside Magazine, the magazine of mounted fox hunting. And I'm Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas. And you're listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for June 18th, 2020, episode 2459. This episode is brought to you by Coverside Magazine. This is our special monthly fox hunting episode. We come to you the third Thursday of every month. So if you want to learn more about fox hunting and gear up to join a hunt this fall, join us on the third Thursday. This month's episode, we're talking to the amazing author, huntsman, renegade, thinker, Rita Mae Brown. She's the author. She is the author of the Sister Jane Fox Hunting Mystery Series, as well as a whole bunch of other books. And she is the founder and huntsman for the Oak Ridge Hunt in Virginia. And uh, she has a lot to tell us about the state of the world. Here in June 2020. What have you ladies been up to since last we spoke? I know every month somebody somebody gets a new hound. Somebody goes to some exotic location to fox hunt. Somebody tries a new sport. Or there's more sourdough. What is it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of sourdough these days, you know. <laughs> Not going out a lot. <laughs> it's the new thing. It's the new so... <laughs> Yeah, but you did have a riding adventure. I did. We had this crazy riding adventure. So you know, where we've been riding every Sunday um, down in various places, and this week it seemed like everybody. This weekend seemed like everybody went away, or they had family in town, or it just seemed like you know once the once things started opening up, people got suddenly busy doing stuff. They went camping. Who knows what else? So. I didn't get organized to find any trail riding buddies. My husband is a major cyclist. And so I just kind of jokingly said, we should go for a ride together. And he was like, okay. So (laughs) not the answer you expected, was it? (laughs) Yeah. So we went down to, there's a trail that, um, that follows the Rio Grande, uh, river and in, follows it basically from our house, which is about a mile away. I had to trailer over there because the riding is a little sketchy. It's like, you have to cross this major, (laughs) like major road. And it's just, I didn't want to cross that road. So I just trailered over there and uh, he rode his bike over there. And then, and then we took off. And I can tell you that Lucy's um, forward trot, because my husband has a bike computer, her like forward going down the trail trot is 9.8 miles per hour. And her cancer. So y'all is, kept up with one another. Yeah. So when things got kind of hairy when <laughs> I when I needed to walk, and a poor Lucy, you know, it was hot, a little bit hot, and uh, a little bit humid for us, which is not very humid at all. But it was a little humid. It was going to storm later, and and so at one point I was like, well, I really need to walk and like let her catch her breath. And of course, that's not really feasible for him. So he kept riding. So he rode down the ditch a little ways farther. And then he came back and I said, well, just don't, you know, just don't sneak up behind me too quickly. Um, even though she's pretty used to bikes, I didn't really know what she would do, but, um, she was great. And so we did about, I think about total of seven miles. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a couple hours. 
Yeah, well, an hour and a half. Yeah, we traveled yeah. and cantered most of the way. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was it was good. And you know, my my farrier was out last week, and she's a Connemara cross. And um, not your farrier, not Lucy. my farrier. Okay. Lucy is a Connemara. Yeah, my farrier is <laughs> not a Connemara cross. <laughs> my farrier is more like <laughs> thoroughbred. Okay. Anyway, he's like, you know, he's uh he's rather famous. His name is Craig Trinka, and uh, he said to me. You know, she looks a little bit like a propane tank. <laughs> what? <laughs> he thinks she's fat. So I don't think she's fat. She's just kind of round. And uh, anyway, so now we both, Lucy and I have a little complex about it. So we're working on our fitness. That is really funny. Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, I think it, it's the season of trail riding. I would say, and it, evidently that's what fox hunters do during Corona apocalypse. So, not well. Last weekend, and a lot of the weekends lately since the last podcast, I've been trail riding with friends. And there's a place in Texas called the Decatur Grasslands. It's about an hour from my house, and a few fox hunting friends from Brazos Valley, and then over from the Dallas side we all met up there and it was kind of fun. We went one day, I took my warm blood hunter mare and we, we fucked, we trail rode one day and homegirl does not cross water and get her feet muddy. So I got off about five times that day. Yeah. So that we could walk across water. But the second day I took my fox hunting horse, who's fantastic through water. And it was really cool. Cause it was six of us trail riding and all of us were on off the track thoroughbreds that, our fox hunters. And so it just, it was, we got a photo op and one of, one of the riders had to leave a little bit early. She had a new horse and she, she didn't want to overtax the horse and do a really long ride, but, um, I'll, I'll, Jen, I'll send you a couple of pictures. It just, it was really neat to be out trail riding amongst, you know, we're in Texas. And so most, all the riders we saw were riding, uh, there was a, a group of endurance riders on Arabians and there was quite a lot of folks on quarter horses and, when we came upon people, they're like, man, your horses are really tall. And we're like, yeah, we're all riding thoroughbreds. And they're like, what? Because they yeah. <sighs> crazy. They weren't nutty. They weren't bad. They weren't. Um, so it was just, it was really fun to be out, you know, trail riding with the fox hunting crowd. And hopefully uh, a few of us went out trail riding a couple week a weekend after that. And there's a couple of us going this coming weekend. So it's very trail ridey. But I'm in Texas, and it's a bajillion degrees and 80% humidity, so you have to be mounted and out by about 8 o'clock at the latest, or you'll cook. Yep, same here. So it's funny you should say that about the thoroughbreds, because um, when I got done with that little ride, of course, Scott took off for his the rest of his 30 miles or whatever he does on a <laughs> Sunday. And, um, and, and I was, you know... Uh, this man, there's a little park there in the trailer parking area. There's a little like park with picnic benches and stuff. And there was a couple sitting there, people sitting there. And this man came up to me and he's like, can I talk to you about your thoroughbred? And she, and he's, I was like, well, she's not a thoroughbred, but you can talk to me about her. And okay. so, um, so he started to ask me that he said, well, you know, my friend wants to give my 17 year old daughter, this horse, and he's won like $350,000 at the track. And, do you think that's a good idea? And I was like, does your daughter ride? And he's like, well, no, not really. And I'm like, is the horse broke any other way besides being on the racetrack? And he's like, well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and so then I'm like, why don't you follow me over to my truck and let me give you some names. <laughs> Definitely a way to do this. It's a much more 
Positive experience for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thoroughbreds don't usually come with training wheels. Yeah. And well, it was funny because he's like, well, your horse must be a thoroughbred because she's so tall. I'm like, yeah, there uh, you go. First, barely 15 hands. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. It's like, Jamie, who who hosts the Monday, Wednesday, Friday horses in the morning episode, is she's been she's looking for a ranger and then keeps end up looking at horses and they're all advertised as 17 hands and none of them are much more than 15 hands. <laughs> yeah. Because and I can say this because I'm from that world, but the folks who ride western think anything bigger than 15 hands is 17 hands. It just jumps, there's there's some kind of a, a gap in the physics. Yes. It goes from 15 to 17. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, you know, I can imagine that Lucy, now that she looks like a propane tank and she's so fat. <laughs> what it it adds to the height. Propane yeah. tank. Yeah, you got to know Craig, man. He's one of those farriers that he just talks and you're like, what now? <laughs> Could you repeat what? that? I need to write it down. It needs to be dialogue in my next novel. I need to record this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to continue with the silliness that, that we've um, started for whatever this month, I, I had to do this term of the month. I was looking through the terms. We've never done this before. And it just seems appropriate for the summer. <laughs> I just looked at the notes. <laughs> and now you all get it. So the term of the month is thong. And it's not what you think. It's not what you think. It's not the kind you wear as a bathing suit for sure. It's also not the kind you put on your feet. So a thong with regards to fox hunting is the long, flexible, braided leather portion of a hunting whip joining the lash to the crop. So if you ever look at fox hunters, they usually have a part that they hold that's kind of like, it's kind of an L shape. Usually it's like a, it's a, it's a horn of some kind, an antler that's been like trimmed down. And I think the right word is maybe whittled. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes they're, um, it, it's usually a piece of antler, right? Mine is bamboo actually. So, yeah. And that's because I like something lighter because I have like kind of, uh, a little carpal tunnel-y, uh, wrists going on. So I think there's a lot of whip makers in the United States that use wood. Yeah. 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 I've seen, I've seen all kinds of different materials, but by far the braided leather covered, and then the antler L-shape sticking out the top. Now, the yeah. L-shape has a purpose, does it not? It does. It does. And it, isn't that so you can use it to, like... Well, you can pick stuff up. And close a gate and... Yeah. Like yeah. A tool. yeah. 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 It's, you can open and close a gate. You can push branches out of the way. You yeah. can grab you can uh, somebody's... back. That is you can the most important back. <laughs> Sometimes you can use the thong to um if you were whipping in and you need to bring a hound home yeah uh, you can I've use done the, that a lot you can use the thong as a leash and having that little l-shaped thing just gives you a little more leverage um and you know you can bring the dog home the hound home with you um if you need to uh it has lots of the the hunt whip in general has lots of amazing purposes I feel like hunt whips, stock ties, and belts are kind of the unsung heroes of the hunt, like hunt attire. Yeah, you're so right about that. You know, people think, you know, I should wear a belt. It looks nice. But it, you, if you get the right belt, it could be a stirrup leather. And stock ties, while they look nice, also could be a bandage. So, so right. when you forget to bring your belt, 
and you end up using a spare stirrup leather from the bottom of your tack trunk, that moldy one that the yeah. holes don't match anything anymore, you're not yeah. you're not out of line at all. Because yeah. your belt it's... is meant to be an emergency yeah. stirrup leather. Yes. See? And a lot of times people will carry a stirrup leather over their shoulders. Yes. Um in case of that mishap. But we have actually used, I think I might've told this story on the show before. So bear with me. Um, because most days I can't even remember my own name, but early on we had, uh, we had a hunt member come out and, um, she came off and we knew right away that her arm was broken. We could tell we we're like, Oh yeah, that, that angle doesn't happen in nature. <laughs> That's not natural. <laughs> no. um, so there was somebody who was hunting with us who had wilderness first aid training. And she put together uh, a, an amazing sling and wrap using um, the handle of a hunt whip. Yeah. And like three people's stock ties. And it was Incredible. And when that woman got to the ER and they got that thing off, they were totally impressed. They were like, this is exactly what you should have done to keep this stable. And I mean, you know, that was because she had that wilderness first aid training and the rest of us would have been just like, rap, 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 you know, <laughs> hold on to your arm. Yeah, exactly. So, That's but I still think to- that would have been yeah. better than just flopping. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Note for next month, find somebody to come on and talk about wilderness training. Wilderness, what did you call that? Wilderness what? Wilderness training? first aid. I want to hear about wilderness first aid. I didn't know there was such a thing, but I feel like I need to know it. Okay. So after that experience, and then we had another kind of um, bad accident, you know, of several years later where we were rather far away from uh, from where an ambulance could get to to us. Um, and the person was, ended up being, being okay, but it was pretty scary times. And we, a bunch of people signed up for that wilderness first aid school and it runs like it ran over a weekend and they offered it here at university of New Mexico, but, um, they, they give them all over the country and periodically, you know, um, they come to your town or it's part of continuing education or something. So, um, so yeah, people should have that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. Definitely. Yeah, very useful. Yeah. Well, what's coming up in Coverside Magazine, girlfriend? Well, the fall issue is always a lot of fun. It's our usually our biggest issue of the year, and we have some great stuff coming up. We have a great article about how to know when it's time to move up to first field, which is a big question, you know, safety and skill and horse skill and all kinds of other things come into play. So that that's going to be a really fun story. Um, what else? We have some great hound profiles. We've been doing these on our online version and now we're going to blow them out. And so we're talking about different hounds from different hunts and what makes them special. So that's super fun. We have a story about Mustangs as field hunters. Oh, cool. Yeah, so we've got we've got quite a few Mustangs that we're profiling. And uh, you know, the usual news, beautiful pictures, and uh probably some fun food story in the back for hunt breakfast ideas. And that's what's coming up. Woohoo! Can't wait. And where can people get their copy? They can find their copy. They can sign up for a 
subscribing membership at mfha.com. Or they can read the e, the e division the e version um, on issuu.com slash e covert side c o v e r t s i d e. There we go. And why is it called covert side for those who are not in the fox hunting? No. Well, I will tell you that I you know the name is the magazine's twenty five year was twenty five years old in twenty nineteen. So the name's been around for quite a while. A covert c o v e r t is like covert, right? And it is where the fox goes to kind of hide. So when huntsmen talk about, you know, casting the hounds into the cover, they're talking about casting the hounds where the fox might be, which could be like brambles or um, a thick area of woods or, you know, something like that. So that's what a covert is. Because I'm yeah. sure that is confusing for many a folk who yep. are not familiar with fox hunting terms or terms that were used pre, pre-industrial revolution that you really don't hear about too much anymore. So, yeah. fascinating discussion coming up. I'm so excited about this. Introduce our guest for us. Today we welcome Rita Mae Brown, who is the huntsman for Oak Ridge Hounds in Virginia. And she is also the author of many books, including the New York Times bestseller, Ruby Fruit Jungle, and the Sister Jane Fox Hunting Mystery Series, which is all about fox hunting. And it takes place in Virginia, and it focuses on sort of these great women masters and the adventures and mishaps that they experience in the world of fox hunting. Welcome, Rita May. Talk to us a little bit about your um, hunting career uh, with Oak Ridge and how you got it started and all of those good details. Well, initially I hunted in my mother's womb, but I don't remember that. Uh, My mother (laughs) hunted with Green Springs Valley in Maryland. But I I was around hunting, but at a distance, and I won't go into the whole history of it, but... At any rate, I was raised um, near Hanover Shoe Farms, which some of you may know as the largest standard bred breeder in America. It's on the Mason-Dixon line. And uh, so I was always around a lot of horses, and the ones that went into the hunt field all had a certain kind of mind. And uh, so I learned early that if, let me put it this way, when you hunt, the last thing you want to worry about is your horse. Mm-hmm. So for me, it really started with the horses and seeing this kind of brain, as as well as athletic ability. But ultimately, the brain is the most important in many ways. And as a kid, I was just fascinated with it. And then, of course, you know, there were fox sounds all around, and that was fun. And then I I went to college and did all that and, you know, et cetera. Greek and Latin, uh, use it every day, and I really do. But I came back to Virginia ultimately after working with Norman Lear in California. And I I always wanted to hunt. So I started hunting with Farmington when Jill Summers was master. And uh, it it wasn't that different than Green Spring Valley, which I observed. Uh, The country is a little more generous in Green Spring Valley. And, of course, it's a fantastic hunt. But Farmington was really good. And... um, I stuck with it and learned a lot and learned Virginians have a very high opinion of themselves. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I can say that, you know, in a sense as, I mean, even though I was born and raised at the Mason-Dixon line, I've been here for so long, I, you know, I consider myself a Virginian, but honest to God, they can be insufferable sometimes. Um, but often it is earned. There are more hunts here than anywhere else in America. In this one state, it is the state sport. So I hunted and hunted and hunted, and then I thought, you know, I would like to do this a different way. Not that there was anything wrong with what Farmington was doing, please. I don't mean that at all. But I want to build a bigger dance floor. I want to get more people on the dance floor. So let me take hunting to uh, the county next door, which is a poor county, and see what I can do. And I had a lot of help. Jill helped me. Uh, the late Ginny Moss helped me. Um, and uh, it was amazing. It took right off. Great. The reason being is I made it easy for people. Mm-hmm. How was that? Well, I gave them a year to get their gear together because it's expensive. Yeah. And again, this is a poor county. And I said, you know, you have a year. Don't spend the money until you think you're going to do this. All I ask is that your horse is clean and your tack is clean and, you know, wear a hard hat. That's it. That's all I care about. And so I began to get people who would have never thought about it, who, who just thought, well, you know, they'll, they'll never accept me. You know, this is a, a very high-class activity. And here they were welcomed in our tailgates. Anybody could come. I mean, the postman would come to the tailgates. He didn't ride, but he'd always come. So people got on the bus pretty early and realized they were having a great time. And one of the reasons they were having a great time is that the late John and Rhonda Holland, who own Oak Ridge, said, I, I knocked on their door. I said, you know, there used to be a hunt here at the turn of the century. And, and then, you know, World War I ended it. And I, I would like to start it. And John said, well, come on in. I've done crazier things than this. So when, what year was that? That was 19, well, it was 1993 that I got accepted, but it was, it was actually three years before that that I got things rolling. But, I mean, how could I miss with people like that? Right, right. <laughs> so true. So, and you're still carrying the horn, right? Yeah, I am. I mean, I, I've got to get my other hip fixed, but I am, and I love it, and I have uh, American foxhounds and half you know, half and half crossbreds. And, well, because that's what I know. That's what I grew up with. But mm-hmm. a good hound is a good hound. Let's just leave it at that. And how many couple do you, are you hunting right now? Right now, I, my numbers are down. I, I'm, uh, when I go out, I'll have like maybe 10 or 15 couple. But in the kennel, well, because, you know, people go and see, or girls go in season, and somebody gets foot sore and all that. I've got maybe right now... Oh, I'd say 27 couple, which is low for me because I have difficult territory. Mm. How, is, how is it difficult? In what way? Um, there's not a lot of flatlands. There's some. But mm-hmm. it's lots of steep ravines and fast-moving creeks, and in some places even branches of rivers. Uh, and there's, there's rock in places. And in 15 minutes, I can go through, what, seven or eight soil types. So you have got to have a hound with a great nose, yeah. mm. especially when you run over clay. Yeah. When do you yeah. have a hard time keeping land to hunt, or is it? You no. Know, people call me up and say, come hunt my land. I mean, really? and that, again, is because we have been so open to people. Right. And when, I, when we do our opening hunt, anyone can come, and we have a, 
a big breakfast, which is in a sense our gift to the to the county and to anybody that wants to observe. We have made so many friends just by being open. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I literally get people who call me up and say, "Hey, see see if you can hunt my hand land. Do I have enough?" <sighs> Uh, that's we all a, wish that's we a had great that. place to be in the community, you know. Well, things are changing, and ladies, uh, I'm going to just be real blunt about this. Uh, of course, partly it's what my career has been, but masters have got to understand we are now in the entertainment business. Yes. <sighs> that I've is- actually heard that from some masters who, I'm in Texas, and we have the... Um, Southwest Hound Show here, and we've had a few judges and guests and whatnot, and I've definitely heard them speak to that and say, you know, there's a lot of pressure for people to have a good time. Yes, there is. I mean, there always has been a very rich hunts. I mean, when I was a kid, old people, well, they were old, they, what were they, 40, for God's sakes, but they, they would say, I had my 40 by 4, which meant they had 40 pieces that were 4 feet high. That was their idea of hunting. Um, and you had to please them back then. Now, it's different now. You couldn't possibly do that. Hey, can, um, can I jump in? I very rarely talk because I'm the producer and I'm supposed to be behaving myself. But can we can we elect Rita Mae Brown as the official ambassador for American Fox Hunting? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But you know what? We all have to be ambassadors. And there are a couple reasons why. I have never met a fox hunter that didn't care passionately about the environment. Yes. I mean, we, I'm, I'm not saying we have a political agenda and, or any of that, but if anyone is going to protect our wildlife, our resources, and including our forests, it's going to be fox hunters. That is true. And, you know, the fox hunters' relationship with landowners is so key because, you know, if they have that relationship and if they have that, you know, conservation easements or whatever the local um, local preservation tools are in place, then that's land that is saved from development. You know, um, wow. I know there's a lot of development pressure in northern Virginia and southern Maryland. So, you know, that's that's going to hurt the sport over time. Well, Washington is like this great golden fungus. It just keeps growing. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I mean, and I mean, Northern Virginia. When I was a kid, you could hunt from almost Leesburg to the spires of Georgetown. You could see it across the river. It was yeah. all farmland. Yeah. Of course, now it isn't at all. But um, and you know, once it's built on, that's the end of it. And I, we've lost Northern Virginia. There's no doubt about that. I mean, there's some hunts there, but it, they they. Boy, do they have their work cut out for them. And the same with uh, parts of Maryland. But at least this has awakened the rest of us to why we need, for lack of a better term, we need environmental control. Yeah. When I feel like fox hunting, and in, in Rita May, I'm from Montana and I live in Texas. But from, you know, and I fox hunted for 10 or 11 years now, but I feel like fox hunting is a unique thing, especially on the East Coast, where there is so much more concentrated urbanization that those hunts really have a lot of pressure slash a challenging opportunity to maintain land to, to hunt on. They do. And this, a lot of this comes down to the leadership of the individual clubs, which fortunately most of them do have farsighted leaders for Casanova, of course, had the Fendleys, which was terrific. And they just had to shut down. They've lost their land. Yep. 
I mean, which is a terrific loss for all of us. Um, uh, that was one of the best managed clubs in America. I mean, hands down. Uh, but you, you, you know, when things get built on and, and, uh, children who are in their fifties or sixties who've waited for daddy to die forever and he finally does and they can make millions dividing it up. A lot of them do. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I so, think speaking, um, go ahead. I mean, you, go you ahead. all have pressures too. I mean, you have, you have more, um, what I would say, climatic pressures than we do. Out West? Yeah, the weather pressures. Yeah. And your season is different. Yes. It's shorter. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the but, terrain's a lot different. And and from what I've seen, um, I've hunted a fair amount in the Midwest, Texas, Nebraska, Kansas, Montana. Um, I, th- I think that those areas of the United States and a hounds person could speak to this way better than I could, but it takes a little bit different hound to hunt that type of territory. And I think that that's still being worked on and developed. Yeah. Well, that was why Lynn Lloyd is in a, in a way has saved fox hunting in her own way by finally getting the MFHA down now, just remember, when it's 7.30 with you and I, wherever we are, it is 1940 in the MFHA offices. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, you I, have no idea how relevant that is to my life right now. <laughs> <laughs> These are not bad people, but they're simply not in touch with what's really happening in the times and what and what a master has to do. So instead of these masters getting support, they either you know they either are are almost suffocated by a wall of silence. Lynn Lloyd tried to get those Western hounds registered for years, and they wouldn't do it. And she finally said, "Well, you know, I don't need you." In so yeah. many words, yeah. and 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 the West doesn't when you get right down to it. Uh, but yeah. by that time, the leadership had. Well, they'd begun to understand it. It is different in different places. And one yes. of the things was, of course, Mr. Foster was traveling all over, so he saw it. Yeah. You know, there's other guys way back when, they didn't really get off the East Coast too much. Yeah. I, and I have to say, Rita Mae, as I talk to you right now, I have a retired Linnoid hound at my feet. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Red yeah, Rock we, Linda. Uh, you know, out here in New Mexico, we've introduced um, we've introduced different you know, lion hounds and walker hounds and, um, and salukis and, you know, just to change up the breeding. And, you know, most of the hounds we've drafted have been, you know, American English crossbreds and we are in the desert and we just needed to do something different. So I think that's happening out here in the West pretty. And I know Grand Canyon, we drafted the salukis from Grand Canyon hounds. So, um, saluki crosses actually. So I think, you know, from the, the sort of Peter Wilson and Lynn Lloyd models of hunting in the drier country, that's starting to happen out West, you know? It has to, because the West is the future. Yeah. Yeah. Because at some point, I, I think we're going to be okay in Virginia. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing things change here that I never thought I would see change. Some for the better and some horrifying. Right? Um, but you still have land but look what's happening in Montana. All those rich Californians. Yep. I mean, now who can afford to live in Montana? That's Not the true. Montanans. 
I mean, I mean, I look at this, and, and and I mean, I understand why people of wealth want to be in beautiful places and have an escape. But then it's impossible for the rest of us to really live there. When I was a kid, anybody could live in Aspen, Colorado. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to yep. be rich. Yeah. So well, Montana is a unique thing, just because the east and the west side of the states are so different, but the property taxes are the same throughout. And my family's in the east side, which is not the beautiful mountainous part. <laughs> So, no, but you can get those big, what is it, 5,000 acre squares? Isn't that yes. what you can rent for? Yeah, I mean, that is incredible. Yes. Yeah. But, but at any rate, I mean, and every area has its special issues and challenges as well as its terrific virtues. And one of the things, and I will say this, and I mean, listen, you can cuss me like a dog. Uh, I, I, but at least I think it, we got to get things out there, whether it's polite or diplomatic or not. We are now in a crisis, not just a fox hunting crisis. We are in an economic crisis. There are 40 million Americans that are unemployed. Yep. This is going to impact every hunt in America. Yep. I have heard nothing from the FHA. Are there programs? Are there, are there, are there things in place where the MFHA can offer leadership and guidance to a hunt in trouble. I don't think they can give any money. I know that. But surely these are our national leaders. I have heard nothing. Well, it's a challenge. It is. uh, It's a challenge. And I think, you know, they have not communicated that well about some of the plans that they have. And, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a hard, a hard thing. You know, it's going to be a hard thing. And then next coming season when they try to renew those memberships and people are like, yeah, I don't really know if I need to pay that right now, given the state of the economy, you know, I do. and how hounds are going to be, it's going to be hard time for fox hunting, I think. And just like, just as it is for everybody. I mean, you know, I'm, I belong to American horse publications and uh, we have, I'm on the board of that organization and we just had, had a, some discussions about, you know, magazines closing and writers getting laid off and, you know, it, it's a, it's a tough time. Well, it is for all of us. I mean, and I mean, here I am a writer and I, I'm having trouble. I've been having trouble because of eBooks. So for the last 10 years, it's been a, not just me, all of us, our yeah. print runs are down. We, when you buy my book at Barnes and Noble, I get two bucks. When you get me uh, on the internet or whatever, I get 30 cents. Yeah. Wow. Where should we so, buy your book? Because we'll definitely plug where we should buy it. But, 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 th- but there's all kinds of changes in our society because of the technology. I sell more books than I ever had in my life, and I have one-third less money. Yeah. So I have to adjust because, of course, I pretty well keep the hunt afloat. It's okay. I'm not angry. It's okay. I do not have to face World War II. I am not a woman whose husband is overseas, left with a pack of hounds, and there's no men around to help. That's what our grandmothers did. Yeah. You know, we all have, some of us have more major challenges than others. I think we can meet this, but we have to be practical. So we're going to have to look at territory, and we may have to ask for help in places we haven't asked before. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, for instance, real estate agents, maybe we can get them to give us some help because wherever a hunt goes, the real estate values go up. Mm-hmm. Isn't that And we've never done anything about that. Mm-hmm. Really? 
I well, they, they do here. Wow. Well, that, and that's a, that's a very interesting thing in that. And I would, I would beg to say that the equestrian community as a whole, not just fox hunting, has never leveraged that because I would say that any place where the equestrian community is well served and participated in, the property values go up. Having lived, because I, I live in Ocala, Florida, we're living it right now. Um, and that's very interesting how. Again, this and this is just the nature of the equestrian industry in the United States. Like everything else in the United States, we're very fractured. We're all very much looking out for our own and have a difficult time looking at the, the greater scheme and the um, what's best for the entire unit, not just us. We struggle with that as Americans. Um, so you have a really great handle on the 30,000-foot view of fox hunting in America in the 21st century. So is it, I'm saying that because I agree with it 120%. Maybe somebody who doesn't disagree, agree with it. Maybe doesn't think you have a great view, but we have the land preservation issue. We have the leadership issue. We have the participation issue. Yeah. Um, and they're all related to each other. Can you attack? Which one do you attack first or should you, do you have to have a three pronged approach? How does that work? Well, I think my my first approach would be for every hunt to look at their due structure. Um, you may have to alter that, and you may have to alter that significantly to keep people going. In other words, this is the last, this is the worst time to raise dues. Yes, you're going to lose money, but don't raise them. Um, try to find ways for people to give in other fashion so your hunt doesn't just blow apart. You know, because people can't do it, or they're angry because they're they're shoved out, so to speak. Um, the other thing I would do, sort of concurrent with that, is if you're in trouble um, or if you're really struggling, is it possible to merge with another hunt? Now, that's not true in the West. You all are too far away from one another. But here in the East and in the Midwest, that possibility, but it calls for significant changes in your leadership, and somebody that was a big bug may not be such a big bug down the road. You may have to give that up uh, if you want to keep the hunt going. You but a couple of hunts have done that, right, Rita May? Yeah, they have, um, and, and, I, and I, hope it, I, mean, I hope it can keep going. Um, the other thing is what you said about the equine community. You couldn't be more, look at Tryon, North Carolina. Well, look what has happened there. Yeah. The money that has poured into that area, Fair Hills, Maryland, $18 million from the state to develop Fair Hills into a five-star format Yeah, for, for uh, equine people. But they won't give the hunt a penny. Yeah. Not a penny. So do we also have an image problem? Yeah, we do. I mean, you, you pretty well nailed it. <laughs> so we have to figure out how to... I don't want to use the word rebrand rebrand ourselves because the the poor image is because it's a stereotypical image left over from dare I say it 1940. Um, <laughs> so we need to help the I guess the equestrian community would be our first target, but the but the country at large that we're not 1940 fox hunters. Well, 
unfortunately, there are still some of us left. Not all but, of us. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I think I think most I think, of us. I think in a in a cultural sense, we're not 1940 fox hunters. No, what I, one of the things that I have done, and and of course this depends on every hunt, but I do not charge any money for anyone in college. Oh, uh, I like that. I, I don't have junior fees. Uh, uh, you, if you're a kid, if you're in college, you, you just come hunt. That's it. You know, I want to see you. Have a great time. Um, again, you lose money, but you open the sport up. And you open the sport up to people that would never, ever have the opportunity. Every two years, William Woods University comes to me. That's uh, in the middle of uh, Missouri. It's Fulton, Missouri. And it has all four uh, equine seats there. It's the only place in America that has it. And they hunt. And they have a whole weekend. And Marion Maggiolo at Horse Country knocks herself out for these kids. And some of these kids, they're the, they're the first generation to go to college. Yeah. Some of them speak, they speak Spanish at home. Some of them are not white. In fact, a lot of them are not white. I love but they that. come here and they have this experience and they love it. Those are the kind of things we have to do. And other people will think of other ways to do it. I just focus on the young because, I mean, how do you learn? You learn by being a barn rat. Yeah. So how do you get those barn rats? Like, you know, I mean, I think Tara grew up on a ranch. I was a barn rat. I, you know, worked off my board and my lessons. And I didn't even own a horse till I was 30, but I rode everybody else's horses and got to experience, you know, fox hunting because my trainer, you know, took all his kids and I got to tag along. And, you know, but these days kids don't go to the barn. You know, they, they're just, they're busy with soccer and who knows what else. So how do you get those kids to become barn rats? Well, I, I mean, if you can get them to see a fox hunt, not even ride in one, many mm. of them are fascinated because, number one, it's beautiful. It's probably the most beautiful sport there is. Yeah. It's just this incredible pageant with yep. sound and gorgeous animals and covering a lot of territory and popping over jumps. I mean, that's pretty thrilling. I mean, some will go for it and some won't. But then you have to make it easy for them. So if you don't have hack barns around you, how are they going to learn to ride? Yeah. Now, hopefully every barn has uh, an old steady somewhere that they can start on, even if they just walk. Yeah. Get them out. However you do it, get them out. Yeah. You know, sometimes it only takes one hunt. Right. That's true. I mean, there's nothing in the world like this sport. Yeah. Nothing. And I know from my conversations with people, especially being in Texas, I tell them my fox hunt and they're, they they have to pick their job off the floor. They had no idea. Yeah. 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 And and if they did it, they'd love it. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. One of the things that I do and I encourage other hunts to do, and I'm not sure I'm so successful at it, but I have a, an arrangement with William Woods. Of course, everything's on hold now because of COVID because nobody can leave the school once they get back once they get back in the fall. But in the, in the summers, we have like a, I, I don't have a computer, but, you know, my hunt secretary does. So the kids that want summer jobs put their stuff up there. And then if you want one of those kids, you can take them. Now, some of them don't, won't get a salary, but they'll get credit at the school, which is what I've been working for. So they get something out of it. But then I always tell people, look, you know, do you have a place for them to sleep, even if it's in the barn? Is there a decent place for them? And can you just give the kid walking around money? 
Yeah. And it's, we, we've had some kids, and some of them have actually come here and started businesses after they graduated. I love it. Wow. And, and uh, kids from California, the kids from California have, they're beside themselves. Yeah. It's really, we, we forget what we have. Yeah. Yeah. Take it for granted. Well, it's a lot of work. And and if you're a master, of course, you're basically, you're putting out brush fires every day, which (laughs) you all know, but you know, I love that. I mean, I love solving problems and I love watching people get stronger and better. And, um, the other great thing about this sport, which, uh, I, and I always tell parents when they complain about, you know, what it costs to teach your kid to ride. And I always say, you know what? It's a lot cheaper than drug rehab. Yeah. Isn't that true? I think and babies and riding, you know, riding saved me as a teenager. I was a wild thing and I got, you know, connected with a barn and that was it. That was my life. That's what I did. And, you know, my mom, Always said horses saved your life. So, you know, well, they do. Yeah, and, and the same with hounds. I mean, animals are great healers, and there's so many kids out there that are they're confused or they're they're coming from very damaging homes. Yeah, I mean, those homes may be upper class, but they're still damaging. Yeah, the kids are not getting the love and the guidance they need, and they act out a lot of them and stuff like that, and. Just the fact that they have to perform and their work is valued by others. That's a huge moment for a kid. Yeah. Plus, it gets them tired. They don't have a lot of energy. To- <laughs> <laughs> That's so yeah, true. Well, yeah, there is that, you know. But, um, but again, when um, Daphne Wood was our first and only woman president, she, of course, concentrated on children, which women so often do. The men really didn't very much, and she she put some programs in place to help with kids, mostly through a pony club, but we don't have the pony clubs that we used to have. Right. So Live Oak, the Live Oak Challenge, we're going to be featuring that in the magazine coming up. You know, we feature that every year, and that's Daphne's project, which is, you know, giving financial grants to pony clubs that show uh, engagement in fox hunting. And uh, she, every year she does it through pony club and every year hunts compete for our uh, pony clubs compete for that money by participating in fox hunts, which I think is pretty, a pretty brilliant program, frankly. Well, she is brilliant. I mean, yeah. both she and Marty are very farsighted and yeah. have been, you know, incredible. Their, their leadership has been incredible. Um, and I keep looking around like, okay, where are the rest of us? You know, <laughs> I mean, we have a, we have a high mark to meet and, but the people are out there. Other masters are very often in the center of things and see what other people don't. I compare them to librarians. Mm. The people who really know what's happening in a community are librarians. Yeah. And they very rarely get credit for it, but people that have no place to go, they're in the library. Children whose parents don't want them are in the library. They, they can learn the computers. They, and some of them, they have to be put out at night, and there's nowhere for them to go, which is another huge problem. But yeah. masters see this in a different way. I mean, we see animal abuse, and we try to correct it. Um, and many of us see people that are alone. Uh, maybe they've had a dreadful experience. They've just been widowed. Uh, and this can help them come back to life, and we forget what we have to offer. Mm. 
I mean, you're not going to walk up to somebody and say, hey, I can make your life better, but just inviting them. I mean, wherever I go, I'm always inviting people, well, come to my hunt. Hey, if you don't ride, I will throw you in a truck and I'll call you a mother trucker. (laughs) (laughs) And they come. And Rita Mae, this this brings me to, like, we've, like, this has been an amazing conversation about fox hunting, and I want to continue that, but this particular conversation really reminds me of, I feel like what you're talking about really is present in the books that you write about fox hunting. Well, yeah, I... I, I mean, I, in a way, I, I felt like I was staving off disaster with a typewriter. I saw no outreach at all uh, mm-hmm. in in fox hunting. I mean, I saw people who were fabulous masters, but who were part of that world where we all grew up with horses, as did I, as did you all, and not realizing how dramatically our country has changed. Mm-hmm. It's an urban and suburban nation now, yeah. and you've got to reach those people. Well, the only kind of weapon or gift I have is writing. And sometimes, you know, I, I wonder if it's still there. I sit down and I think, you know, I've got to be nuts to do this. But um, I do it. And I go to big cities. And I, I, in the beginning, I expected to meet with a lot of hostility. I was not. I mean, even in cities like San Francisco, where I just steeled myself, they asked great questions. They were curious. And I would try to refer them to clubs close to them. But some of those clubs were not welcoming. Yeah. yeah. And that we got to change. Yeah. I mean, a, a city like Memphis. I mean, Memphis has, a, you know, clubs in Mississippi and yeah. around and um, Arkansas. And, and I, think they're, I think they're pretty good there. I mean, and of course, they've been dealing with floods. Yeah. So they got to shift everything. But if you're if you've got people in Memphis and you're even if you're at a dinner table and somebody at the table next to you, if we ever get back to that, over here, you say, "Hey, here's my card. Come to a hunt." Yeah. Continually invite people. So so Rita May, Sister Jane, tell us about Sister Jane. Where uh, did she come from? Well, you know, in a way, Sister Jane is a mixture of some of the great lady masters I've known in my life and uh, who who offered me the wonderful idea that, you know, you're only as old as the horse you're riding. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know? Another quote. So, <laughs> and uh, I kept thinking, you know, these are remarkable women. Um, and of course, they were, they were older than I was, so these were the women who basically got, got us through World War II. Uh, and taking care of the house and this and that. But uh, I thought, you know, don't start with a young, fabulous-looking lady. I mean, Sister Jane is good-looking, but she's old. Start with an old woman and see how she has affected everyone around her and her relationship to others. And, of course, part of the fun of this is, I, I don't know about your state, but Virginia has always had fabulous black riders. Yeah. There was even a black show circuit back I when I was a kid. Know that. Um, and and they and they all worked for the big rich people who had fabulous uh, show horses, and they would ride, You know, they would get the horse ready, and then the white guy would ride him in the ring. But in order to get the horses ready, very often the owners would allow the the black riders to ride them, and they all went to the white horse shows. But they had to sleep in the barns because they couldn't sleep in hotels. I mean, the history is just amazing 
um, and all of the guys on the back of the tracks, the grooms, they yeah. were all black, most of them. So we, uh, I kept thinking, I've got to tap sister into that mm-hmm. uh, because, of course, she would know about it. So she has a lover uh, who is a black gentleman who's mm-hmm. an accountant. You know, he made, and his brother was at Harvard and got thrown out for alcoholism. So you've got one brother that succeeded and one brother that failed. And they're very much a part of the story, as is that whole family. But the most fun, and one of the reasons I love Sister Jane, is there's a lady in there called Aunt Daniela. And Aunt Daniela is, well, she says she's 94, but we know she's older and she's (laughs) black. Um, I mean, she was very, very beautiful, sort of like Dorothy Dandridge beautiful, Mm. um, all that. And so, of course, she slept with everyone. (laughs) And, and, And that's part of the fun of it. And I'm thinking, you know, this, this, this is, fox hunting has everything. It has sexual peccadilloes. It has fabulous people. And it has people that, honest to God, they're too dumb to have been born. But we're all out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what I love about it. Because, you know, there, there is total equality when you're on a horse. Yes. <laughs> uh, and we've never really made use of that either. So I thought, well, maybe somebody will read these books. And it'll it'll creep in because if you make a big deal out of it, then you've ruined the book, and it's like a political statement. And this isn't a political statement. This is really what I've seen from the time I was a kid. Yeah. So the characters, the characters in the Sister Jane series, I have a, I, you know, I'm I'm a big fan, and I've been reading them all along. And periodically, I run across a fictional character that reminds me of somebody I know. <laughs> Good. When I think of that every time I, I, I've read like six of them, but I try to read one at the beginning of every season. Cause I don't want to read them all and not have one to read and be sad. But, oh. um, but I feel, you know, as I've, you know, gotten around and, you know, met more people in, in the hunt world and, and gone to different hunts and what, like I find myself at, you know, a hunt or an event or something, I'm like, I wonder who's this person and I wonder who's <laughs> that person and I wonder who inspired this person. Well, here's the secret. Never <laughs> piss off a writer. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I mean, look, look at uh, The Inferno. Those people yeah. are still roasting in hell and that was written at the end of the 14th century. So you better be kind of careful. Yeah. But, I mean, we do have everything in this sport. We have brilliant people we have people that really they're not very intelligent, but they can ride. And then we have all the people in the middle. It's like any other group of people. Most of them are honest. Some are not, you know. Um, but they all love the game. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I have to ask to Rita May. So as I told you, I have um, Red Rock Linda is crawling in my lap as I'm talking to you. And one of my favorite, favorite, favorite of your books is the animals and the perspective the animals have and the contribution that they have. And I would just love to hear kind of, you know, where that comes from and what inspires that. And, you know, do you have a rooster in your house now? And the, just like, all of that. <laughs> There's one outside the door. Um, <laughs> it's interesting that you bring that up because of course there are people who feel quite superior to animals. I would never read a book where the animals talk. Uh, they they are completely human-centered. And we know from the research and the work done with those animals that guide the blind that those dogs have a vocabulary of about a five-year-old child. Yeah. 
So all of these animals have gifts that we can understand, but they have gifts that we don't understand. That red rock Linda can smell time. Yeah. She puts her nose down, and she knows when that line was laid, assuming there's still some scent. And if any other creature crossed it, she knows what that confrontation was. We have no idea. And I look at this, and I keep thinking, um, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious nut, don't get me wrong, but I have catechism, and I, I believe. And I really believe all creatures, great and small, the good Lord made us all. And I think we have, uh, we've forgotten that. We've forgotten the gifts all these creatures gave us. And we wouldn't be alive if it were not for horses, hounds, and cats. A, cat, a, mice, a mouse can eat a quarter of grain a week. One little mouse. And if you are operating at a subsistence level, you need every grain you can keep. And these animals kept us alive. And we made partnerships with them. It's like a contract. And whenever you go to the SPCA, the contract has been broken, but it wasn't the animal that broke it. Yeah. And I keep thinking of that, and I try to get that in Sister Jane, and I try to get the animal's perspective. And I don't know about you, but I think horses have just wicked senses of humor. (laughs) Gosh, yes. I mean, the stuff they can do to you. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't mean throw you off. I just mean the stuff they can do to you. Um, and, and, and we, we, we got to learn we're just one animal among others. And, um, I, I hope we will, but again, being urban and suburban, we're losing that contact. Yeah. But I, I try to get it in Sister Jane and it's interesting, you know, how people want to know about the animals and many of them don't know about a pack mentality. Which yeah. Of course yeah. we have to know, you know, we wouldn't be able to hunt if we didn't know it. Um, and, and that, that fascinates them. And I said, well, we're very similar because we also have a pack mentality. Yeah. So, and, Rita uh, May, yeah. we're, just, we're just about out of time here. Um, any, any closing thoughts on fox hunting, your writing career, the future, and anything you'd like to add? And also, how can people um, buy your books and get in touch if they want to visit Oak Ridge? Oh, to, I mean, I'm in the I'm in the MFHA book, but uh, Oak Ridge. We're if you have a computer, again, I don't, but I know we're on it. Uh, my hunt secretary has it. I'm so far out; we don't have the optic fiber. It's a long story. I won't bore you with it. But at any rate, I, I'm I welcome anyone. I really do. If you don't ride, we'll take care of you. We'll get you in a truck. I mean, you'll get to see things you wouldn't see any other way, and uh, you'll meet some Looney Tunes people, which means you're going to have a lot of fun. Um, but if if I could say anything to anybody out there, it's talk to other people. Just talk to them. Listen to what they have to say. Um, try to bring them to an appreciation of animals. But many of them have a dog they love or a kitty. So you've got, you know, you've got one way. And the other things for those people that want all of these answers, there are no algorithms for fox hunting. Every time you go out there, you haven't a clue. So true. I mean, it, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know what you're supposed to be doing, but you have no idea what's going to happen. You're right. dealing with a wild animal who's not reading the same books you are. <laughs> so true. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have been made a fool of so many times. It's a wonder I have any self-esteem left. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think huntsmen by nature have to be pretty thick skinned. <laughs> right, right. It's always fun when the weather's been bad for two years and the field starts to blame huntsmen. I had no idea I had such meteorological power. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's okay. I mean, all of us are in this. It's irrational, or maybe it's super rational. It's not logical, which is why it is so valuable. Yeah. Why do you want to live a left brain life? Okay, ladies, since we only have one guest today, we have time for me to quiz you. (laughs) One of my favorite things to do. I like this. Yes. Opinion. Um, In the hunt field, boots on horses' legs or not? Emily, you first. Nope. Nope. And why? Uh, Because boots can slip. Boots can get... um, things in them like thorns and branches um, boots cause the uh, leg to heat up in a way that may not be healthy over the long time that you're out fox hunting boots get wet and change shape uh so no boots no boots okay tara i'm a hard no also hard no any um, other reasons beyond beyond what uh emily said i, w- I would mimic i would say the same as what Emily said, but I also have not in the fox hunting field, but in another field, some somewhat similar moving cattle, that type of thing. I've had boots disappear. Oh, they just disappear off the horse's legs? Oh, where'd it go? Yes. Come off oh, and yeah. disappear. Sucked off in mud, whatever, which, so then you have, you know, and the expense of losing the boot, but the only thing I'll have on my horse's legs is I do hunt Simon in bell boots. Yeah. I, and I, I also... don't care if I lose one. Yeah, I also hunt in bell boots because um, of overreach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. It wasn't until very recently that I got on to the no legwear on my horse in the Huntfield bandwagon. Um, because I think because everywhere that I hunted, the country was reasonably cleared in that even when we were in really trappy areas and thickets and stuff, there was a trail to follow. We were not bushwhacking. Yeah, we bushwhack a lot. There's a lot yeah, of cockleburs here. When I came yeah. down here to Florida, uh, particularly the hunt that I go to south of us, we are in, I, I want to say they're palmettos, but I'm probably wrong. It's some type of a tropical um, palm tree looking thing, but it grows very, very close to the ground. And the trunk doesn't grow vertically it grows horizontally in kind of a snake fashion and the trunk will be upwards of four or five inches in diameter and they all curl and just imagine a can of worms it's literally what it is yeah and we have to ride through that and my horse had boots on and he got several chunks of stuff stuck into those boots between his leg and the boot, which luckily didn't cause his leg any damage. But when I looked at that, I went, I get it now. Yeah. (laughs) Because everybody thinks you're not allowed to have horse boots in the hunt field because of the way they look. Yeah, no. But it's a practical thing, isn't it? It is. It's really a practical thing. It's And, you know, we had a, a woman come out with us who was a dressage rider. And, you know, she got off the trailer and, um, and she's a great rider, a great woman. And, you know, the horse was wearing the standing wraps and the, you know, 
And then she took the standing wraps off and she put wraps on like polo wraps. And we were like, Oh no, 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 no. (laughs) And, and, you know, it was just an education thing. Like we're going to be, especially in our country, we have these cactus called jumping choyas and they are brutal. And, they're all over the territory. And so you get one of those, I mean, you have often, we have often seen horses that are totally quiet in the hunt field, all of a sudden have a bucking fit. And that's because they have a jumping choya stuck to their butt, you know? (laughs) So, um, so you don't want that stuck to your leg. That's for sure. So, and by the way, speaking of hunt whips, they are hunt whip handles are excellent jumping choya removal devices. (laughs) So describe what a jumping choya looks like. It's like a tube. It's like a series of tubes, um, long, skinny, like uh, tube, tubular, skinny though. Not like you see the classic Segoro cactus, um, but but you know maybe maybe three inches in diameter, and they're covered in little tiny um, pricker thorns. And yeah, if you look at it, oh if my you gosh, Google they it, look, they look like like amoebas from hell. Yeah, and like we small like attacking cactus. It looks horrible. Wow. Yeah. Ugh. So we have those all over our territory. So yeah, you don't want that stuck in your boot. Definitely not polar wraps. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. I have actually had anybody who hunts in this area um, has a uh, you know has a has a story about a choya a choya encounter. Mine is that I I brushed up against one. Um, during the hunt and I don't even know, I didn't even realize that it happened. And for the rest of the hunt, I just kept, it kind of got me right on the inside of my knee. God knows how that happened, but I don't know what I was doing with my leg, but, um, but for the rest of the hunt, I was like, what is in my boot? And I kept reaching down and like trying to pull it out. And then I got this rash on my knee that would not go away. And I had that rash for like, I don't know, three months. Wow. Yeah. Cause they embed these little tiny little like thorns in your skin. Is there like and poison in them? No, but you, when you pull them out of your horse's legs, which is a post hunt ritual in New Ugh. Mexico is to get out your multi-tool and, you know, run your hand up and down your horse's legs and make sure they have no choya thorns in there. And then you get after it with the little pliers on your multi-tool and pull out the thorns. So interesting. Anyway, there you go. Now, one more question. I wasn't done yet. Way back a bazillion years ago, show hunters were fox hunters that went in the show ring. That was a way to do things with your fox hunters during the off season. You took them to shows. I like where this is going. And the modern fox hunt or field hunt or show hunter, I'm going to use the word show hunter. Mm-hmm. Um, when shown over fences, invariably wears a standing martingale. It is part of the required gear. It is not legally required, but that's what you would wear in order to have the kit that everybody in the 21st century uses. In each of your respective hunts, do you still see horses in the hunt field wearing standing martingales regularly, or are they less common? Terra first. That's a very interesting thing to me because I show hunt, like I show hunters, and I fox hunt. And I would say 
off the top, it's not something that stands out to me. I think there's a couple hot horses in my field that maybe wear a standing martingale. I think more wear a running martingale. But I did in the during Corona Apocalypse, I I ridden with a standing martingale ever in my life. Corona Apocalypse, I did a couple virtual lessons where we send a video of a of a show hunter trip to a judge and they tell you something mm-hmm. legit and tell you about it. Mm-hmm. And I sent one of my trips to Jeff Teal. Well, three trips to Jeff Teal, who's a pretty renowned show hunter judge. And he told me in my um, evaluation of my trip that he thought I should have a standing martingale on my horse. And I've never had a trainer tell me to do it. Granted, I keep my horses at home, but I've had, I only show with a hunter, with a hunter trainer. And I, and he asked why I didn't use one. And I was like, well, I've never used one. I don't really know that much about them. And I think it's silly to use one if you don't know what it is. And no one told me I should use one. So I don't use one. And since then I've been using one on my mare and I do feel it's funny. She's eight and I've owned her since she was six months old and she seems to feel like the standing martingale is like a, um, it's like a pacifier almost. It just, and I have it super loose. It's, she's not contained by it, but it just obviously makes her feel, I I don't know, like a, it's like a pacifier. So I don't see a lot of them in the field in my hunt, but it's been a new thing for me and I use it on her. But I do not use it on my Fox hunter. Cause the last thing Simon needs is for anyone to encourage him to carry his head any lower than he already does. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Emily? I can honestly say that I have maybe seen one standing Martingale in our field. Um, in 10 years, I, they so just don't use them. Fashion in, in the hunt field then. Interesting. Well, at, there are running Martin Miguel's though, and they um, serve a pretty important purpose if you've got one that's a head tosser. Yeah. You know. Which which in, initially was the goal behind the, the standing martingale as well. Yeah. That it also ha- it raises the issue of if it's put on too short, it can cause a problem. Or right. if you get into a bad spot, could it potentially cause a problem? We don't know. Yeah. But I can, because I, that's one of those things I can argue both sides, but I was very curious as what the current trend was. So it seems like the current trend is in the hunt running. field, um, running martingales that are used with horses that and riders who are having issues with the, the, the pole breaking the rider's nose. Yeah. <laughs> More so than standing martingales. I like well, that. as a I running like martingale, a, more popular with the venters, which I feel like a venters are more likely to be fox hunters. Eventers are not allowed to use standing martingales. They're no, not. They're, nope. They're not allowed. And, oh. I, and so, you know, that the standing martingale and the bad things could happen, you know, really brings up an interesting point about fox hunting, which is that you kind of, um, you want as little as possible to get in the way of your horse's own ability to navigate himself out of a sticky, sticky situation. So, you know, just imagine that you're, you know, your horse goes down on his knees and for whatever reason, and how is he going to get himself up if he's wearing a standing martingale and he can't like leverage with his head and neck because he's, I mean, it shouldn't be that tight, but nonetheless, I think, the potential you know, that it could be too short under yeah. any circumstance. Got it. Yeah. 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 
Well, Coco, my show hunter, is always, she likes to reach down and, and itch her inside of her legs with her nose. And invariably, when she does that, the Sandy Martingale around her neck goes over her ears. That's no good. It's yeah. kind of terrifying. Yeah. 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 And it's also, you know, I mean, the, the horsemanship and pony club people are, are, are probably going to fall out of their They're chairs. They're their eyeballs right now. <laughs> yeah. But I, well, and the other thing, too, is I, I will, if we're at checked somewhere... And, Explain you know, it seems like, yeah, oh, we're just standing okay. waiting for the huntsman to gather the hounds or, or whatever it happens to be. If we're checked, I will sometimes let Lucy eat yeah. a little bit Absolutely. because, you know, it helps Pacifier. relax her and it's like a little break and she gets a little nourishment and, you know, and so again, you don't want any equipment to get in the way of that process. Right. And that's another one that Early on, when I was hunt, when I was fox hunting, invariably when I was when I was a kid and I fox hunt, I was being invited as a junior, generally speaking, as part of a, our pony club gatherings to hunt. So we always had to be on our absolute best behavior, and because it was pony club, we all had to be spit shined, and we were not allowed to ha- let our horses eat because heaven forbid you should let the horse eat with his bridle on. Right. Yes. But gr- as an adult, someone who was much more well versed in fox hunting than me. Uh, said to me once when I had I was on a, a fractious horse, which I spent a lot of time on in the hunt field. Um, just go ahead and let him eat grass. Which is worse, eating grass or freaking out, freaking out or irritating the entire field because your horse is being a jerk. Just let him eat grass. And I'm going ding 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 ding. <laughs> I, I it's like a pacifier. It really. Let I mean, eat, I've had a sake. Yeah. <laughs> Well, especially if you're hunting for a couple hours, right. we all know horses with an empty belly feel bad. That's right. Yeah. If you can have some port and a chicken sandwich, your horse can have some <laughs> grass, right? I right. agree. There we go. Well, that's it for the quiz questions this month. I will have more <laughs> next month, so be prepared. Okay. <laughs> okay. I think it's about time to wrap this thing up, ladies. Where can we find Coverside again? Uh, you can find Coverside at issuu.com slash ecoveredside or you can read the online edition at ecoveredside.net and that's a different publication it's a, our online magazine Tara you can, can find I- me on Instagram I'm <laughs> at TN Tibbets don't forget all my B's and all my T's uh, you can find the links to today's guests in the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com you can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook just search for Horses in the Morning we're a lively fun group to follow you can have all of the Horse Radio Network shows with you wherever you go with the free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to your app store and search for Horse Radio Network. We are very grateful to our sponsor, Coverside Magazine and the MFHA. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.